There is great hope within the cell and gene therapy community that off-the-shelf products could solve many of the scaling and logistics challenges we face in the industry. Just imagine that instead of waiting for a donor match for a failing organ, the cells needed to rebuild it were banked, ready for use in a regenerative medicine therapy. Or, instead of a multi-week turnaround for treatment, having the curative power of engineered immune cells at hand in case cancer strikes. We can already do amazing things in these fields and the procedures are advancing in sophistication every day. However, sourcing the cells necessary to develop these therapies can be a challenge. The potential of stem cells is exciting many across the industry. These cells, which can be differentiated into any other cell type, could rewrite the playbook in terms of sourcing cellular material for advanced therapies manufacture. So far, so good, but there is still some way to go before we can manipulate stem cells routinely at scale. So, how might therapy developers benefit from the unique abilities of stem cells? And will they live up to their expectations? Join me, Stuart Lowe, as we plug into Invent Life Sciences, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, why might stem cells herald the next revolution in advanced therapies manufacturing? Stem cells aren't new in medical circles. We've been performing bone marrow transplants since the late 50s to regenerate blood cells and fight hematological cancers. The hematopoietic stem cells within bone marrow are just one example of the capacity of this cell type to proliferate and differentiate into other cells. Since the 50s, scientists have discovered how to use so-called pluripotent stem cells to generate all of the most important cell lines within the body. And in the past 20 years, it's even been possible to run this process in reverse, turning adult cells into induced pluripotent stem cells, or iPSCs for short. And this has opened the door for new manufacturing techniques in the regenerative medicine field. I wanted to know more about the potential benefits of stem cells and how they're driving the industry forward. So I started off by talking with Marina Madrid, co-founder and chief product officer at Salino. Could you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your work in cell engineering? Absolutely. Uh, so my name is Marina Madrid. I'm a co-founder and chief product officer at Salino. My background's actually in uh, physics. I did my PhD in applied physics in a femtosecond laser lab at Harvard, where I co-invented several laser-based techniques for manipulating cells. And that's part of the technology that we use at Salino today. Of course, it's evolved and grown a lot. Uh, we incorporated Salino back in 2017. Mm -hmm. My own specific role has been very flexible, as is often the case with early stage startup co-founders. In the early days, I was heavily on the technical side. I uh, did 
to my knowledge, the first experiments in the world applying lasers to induce pluripotent stem cells to do intracellular delivery of cargoes. These days, I'm in a product management role, so I'm the link between the external world and the internal world. I'm responsible for engaging with the folks that are in the autologous and allogeneic induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cell therapy space. Um, I'm responsible for really understanding what challenges they're facing and then bringing them back internally and making sure that we're using our platform technology to solve the right problems. So I also do a lot of thought leadership, specifically in the autologous IP cell therapy space. I wrote the first review paper on that space. I'm part of many consortiums that are involved in beginning to develop standards because it's a nascent field. So we've talked a bit about stem cells. I'm just kind of going to rewind a little bit and uh, think about why would you want to use stem cells as a source for cell therapy manufacture? The special thing about stem cells is that they have the code within them to become any cell type in the body. So they are a fabulous regenerative medicine platform. If you are trying to treat a patient that's suffering from age-related macular degeneration, you could differentiate stem cells into retinal pigment epithelial cells. If you're trying to treat Parkinson's, you can differentiate stem cells into dopaminergic neurons. If you're trying to treat epidermolysis bullosa, you could differentiate stem cells into skin. Uh, so they're just a really fabulous regenerative medicine platform with a ton of potential. The ways in which they've been hindered have all been, you know, on the manufacturing side. That's really what's hindering the potential of them right now. But they have amazing potential as a regenerative medicine platform. And then the other unique characteristic of stem cells is that they can proliferate indefinitely, which is nice because if you think about alternatives to pluripotent stem cell-derived cell therapy, one alternative is to use primary cells to say, okay, we're going to do a cadaveric beta cell transplant um, for this patient suffering from diabetes. But those primary cells, they don't divide indefinitely and they don't proliferate indefinitely. So you have very limited sources of primary cells, which mm. is why the industry is uh, so excited about pluripotent stem cell-derived therapies. In regenerative medicine, there's often a tension between the potential benefits of a therapy and the ability to source the primary cells that perform the same functions as the cells you're trying to replace. It could mean a painstaking surgical procedure or needing to rely on an unfeasibly large amount of donor material. But using the proliferative capacity of stem cells, therapy developers could expand the cell numbers before differentiation or even bank a patient's own stem cells ahead of time. A larger bank of stem cells means more availability for regenerative medicine. But what else can these stem cells offer us? Could stem cells make an impact in immuno-oncology? To find out, I spoke with Ardil Drew, Senior Research Manager developing stem cell-derived natural killer cells, or NK cells, for glycostem therapeutics. Could you introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about your work in cell engineering? Thank you for the invitation. I'm Adil Doğan Aydru, but for the rest of the talk, you can refer me as Adil. And I'm uh, joining here from Glycostem Therapeutics. We are a NK cell company. Today, I think we will talk about how we can use stem cells to generate NK cell-based therapies and, and a little bit in a broader perspective. And my expertise is I'm trained as a bioengineer and then did my PhD at Karolinska Institute, mostly on T cells and NK cells and how to modulate them. Then uh, performed my postdoctoral study at Karolinska Institute and then moved to US 
Florida, set up my lab. I worked as an assistant professor for five years, mostly focused on how to genetically modify natural killer cells and how to express different type of receptors uh, on natural killer cells. One of the inventions that we came up with is how to express T-cell receptors on natural killer cells. And three years ago, I joined to Glycostem Therapeutics and now working on stem cell-derived NK cells and their therapeutic applications. Thanks. That's a really good background for this podcast. Uh, I wanted to talk about natural killer cells and what their impact is on immune oncology. Uh, in fact, kind of what the whole cell and gene field has brought to immune oncology. I mean, yes, of course, it's a little bit broad question, but you have to start from somewhere. And uh, first cell therapy, as we all know, is mostly hematopoietic stem cells. That's uh, after that, what we learned about their efficacy and also risks. Things to evolve towards T-cell-based therapies in early 90s, basically uh, TIL therapies and then T-cells, uh, those therapies early 2000s. And meanwhile, in 1970s, natural killer cells were discovered and slowly we learned their function, their antiviral impact and their anti-tumor capacity. And that's also in early 2000s, start to came into the clinic as first clinical trials. And uh, what we learned back then is that NK cell uh, infusions to cancer patients was safe. And in, in some cases, it was also effective. Most of the struggle and the developments last 20 years was how to get enough NK cells or how to genetically modify them to increase efficacy, but also keep the safety in picture. So where did those early NK cells come from? What was the source? The source back then was mostly peripheral blood NK cells. So it was uh, both allogenic and then later autologous NK cells that were used. The early ones were from overnight activated natural killer cells, for example, is one of the early ones, but they are all peripheral blood derived. And there's glycostem and few other academic and industrial companies also tried stem cell derived NK cells, but that is coming almost a decade later. Okay. And were they doing an expansion step when they had collected the NK cells? So in the beginning, it was really difficult to expand NK cells. So most of the efforts uh, later on went to that direction. Okay. And many companies try to expand peripheral blood NK cells. To say it very simple, it is easier to expand T cells if we speak to early 2000 terms. Right. But it was not that easy to expand NK cells ex vivo. And uh, a lot of uh, efforts, intellectual thinking and uh, resources went towards developing expansion platforms. Okay. And then, of course, during these difficulties, creative ideas come to surface. And one of the creative ideas what the glycostem therapeutics came was, I was not part of it back then, but was to differentiate natural killer cells from hematopoietic stem cells. Okay, and that gets around some of the issues. Yeah. What is it about the um, NK cells that makes them difficult to expand ex vivo? In terms of peripheral blood NK cells, I guess you're talking. Yeah. Why it is difficult to expand them? First of all, in the early phases, we try to expand them with cytokines and medium. So first of all, you need to find the right medium, right conditions. And uh, when you look at T cells, you can expand them 
Antigen specific T cells are easier to expand due to antigen exposure together with cytokine support. Okay. But it wasn't like that for NK cells. And one of the support to expand NK cells was using feeder cells, but that also made in the beginning difficult to transition to clinical manufacturing. But now there are a lot of products that use feeder cells that are in clinical trial phase. Like you said, companies like Glycostem come along and propose an entirely new way of generating NK cells, or well, new that hadn't been tried before. What does it allow you to do if you're generating NK cells from stem cells? So if you start from stem cells, one thing is it's easier to expand stem cells without differentiating them to natural killer cells. In early phases, you can expand stem cells significantly. Mm -hmm. So that enables differentiation of NK cells from a larger number of cells so that you don't have to use feeder cells to expand natural killer cells in the end. Okay. So this is one of the benefits of, I think, most of the stem cell-based technologies. You can use stem cells' ability to proliferate ex vivo in a positive way to generate multiple different products. It's fascinating to hear Ardil talk about the development of NK cells. The problem that Glycostem were trying to solve was that even if you could isolate NK cells from peripheral blood, they were much more difficult to expand than other cell types. This meant that they looked to stem cells and expanded those to provide a more abundant source of NK cells. I asked Ardell whether the natural variability between stem cell donors was a concern for him. I mean, one of the things that is difficult about the process is obviously they are living things and there's lots of natural variability. Are there steps that we can take to sort of control for or manage this uh, natural variability? Yes, and it is also difficult <laughs> because I can say yes for a process that I am more in control with. You know, for our process, one of the things that we are working on is at least in two ways. We are trying to optimize our process so that donor variability is not a major factor in generating efficient NK cells and potent NK cells. And then, of course, you can start, go back, and uh, another way to look at it is your donor or source selection. Mm -hmm. You know, which banks to start with, which stage of cells you start with, or which centers to work with, how many cells to start with, what type of cryopreservation requires before you get the source. You know, I'm not talking about the cryopreserved end product. I'm talking about, for example, using... The starting material. Yeah, starting material. And then, yeah. of course, thinking about genetic screening of these stem cells and to minimize basically the variability by controlling as much as possible from start to the end your process. So this is very important. And in the beginning, it sounds sometimes very simple that... Process control is something very simple, you think. You use a bioreactor, you have a starting material. Even if you you have a good starting material, if you are not in control with your process in this multi-week expansion differentiation, and I'm talking about not only glycostem, but in multiple either stem cell. In general, yeah. Yeah, in general. So you need to be in control of your process. And this comes with experience. So day by day, we are getting much, much more in control about what we are generating. Yeah, interested to hear your thoughts about iPSCs as a starting material, because in theory, you get uh, around 
many of the variability questions by having a source of IPSCs that you have as a kind of a fresh starting point. Is that what you're finding or, or actually is it more difficult than it sounds? There are advantages and disadvantages of using IPSCs, but these disadvantages can turn into an advantage later. But there is, uh, IPSC field is a little bit younger in the NK cell field. Right. Uh, IPSC derived NK cells is a little bit younger. And what may be a risk there is you take certain clones to your clinical trial level. I see. And if you run clinical trials with one clone, it can be biased. It can be a really good clone. Or maybe it turns out to be a really bad clone. So it would diversity in donors or IPSC source is also important to learn which one is going to work better. So what we are doing in clinical trial right now, we are not running treating our patients with NK cells derived from one donor. No, you know we need to see what happens with if you use products from different donors in terms of safety and efficacy. So that's one of the risks for IPSC derived in cells that there may be a source bias. Okay, and you're using your experience that you've derived from uh, hematopoietic stem cells and saying, okay, we need a diversity of donors. Let's take that learning and bring it into the IPSC's domain. Yeah, so for IPSC companies, we can help with that way. We have this experience and we have a robust platform that we can screen a lot of things. And we suggest them to also test multiple different clones, but it is costly, you know? Yeah. You might find one that you're particularly adept at handling, right? And it's like, well, our process works really well for this sort. Yeah. And there are multiple ways to generate IPSC cells too. Which way is better? Which start material to generate iPSC is better to make NK cells? Yeah. So these things we will learn. I mean, I think there will be really good clinical data derived from iPSC cells. Mm -hmm. T cells are coming to iPSC derived T cells. And these things will happen because science evolves. And we will learn, we will adapt, we will modify accordingly and make these cells much better in the end. But it can be faster if we work together in general. As Ardell points out, you might see variability in starting material depending on which type of stem cells you use. The jury's still out as to whether this makes a difference clinically. And that's why researchers like Ardell are interested to see how iPSCs shape up in terms of variability and accessibility. Given that Marina's company Salino are seeking to develop a potential iPSC source, I was keen to hear her perspective. So do the iPSCs have to come from your own cells or is there a kind of allogeneic donor pool like a blood bank and get some iPSCs from there? Yeah, there's absolutely uh, folks moving forward on both approaches. So there are allogeneic approaches and allogeneic pluripotent stem cell-derived cell therapies in development. There are also autologous. Some of the advantages to going the autologous route, patient safety. Uh -huh. So if you are receiving a therapy derived from your own cells, then you don't have to undergo immunosuppression, which can be really challenging for particular patients. The challenge with autologous is that you have to manufacture each batch for each patient. Okay, so it means there's a link between the manufacturing in terms of time. Right. Because you can't just kind of batch these up and, and save them forever. Exactly, which is why I think a lot of the autologous iPSC cell therapies are focused on regenerative medicine 
or chronic degenerative diseases as opposed to, say, cancers. Because with something like Parkinson's or age-related macular degeneration, you can handle that three-month manufacturing timeline. Yeah, you have some time. Yeah. So what does that manufacturing look like? So I've taken a, is it a skin sample or where do you get the first um, sample of cells from? So this is an interesting question because in theory, you should be able to take any cell type and reprogram it back to a pluripotent state. What folks tend to go with are, so like you said, skin samples, folks will isolate fibroblasts from the skin samples. Blood is also a really common starting source of cells to use. I would say blood and skin are the two most commonly used sources of cells. Is that due to accessibility, I suppose? It's due to accessibility. I believe part of it's historical. If I'm not mistaken, I think the first iPSCs were derived from skin. Okay, so the protocols are, are there as well, yeah. Exactly. The protocols exist. But if you look in the literature, there are instances of folks deriving iPSCs from cells found in hair follicles or cells found in urine. And urine would be, I mean, a very easy to acquire sample. Easy, yeah. But the SOPs just aren't as developed for that starting cell type. So a lot of folks tend to use blood cells or skin cells. Yeah, those are fairly accessible. People sort of understand giving a blood draw in order to get a medicine. I think that that's kind of a good link. Exactly. I think the blood draw is a little bit more commonly used than the skin biopsy. Actually, the ideal starting cell type can depend a bit on age. Okay. So for a very elderly patient, their skin has been exposed to UV over the entire course of their life. They have more UV-induced mutations. Those skin cells are lower quality. But for an infant, it's difficult, actually, to draw a large volume of blood from an infant. I've got two kids, and if they ever get a cut in the playground or something, the speed at which they heal is incredible. <laughs> yes. You know, so those cells have got a lot of potential. It regenerates so quickly. Yeah, yeah. And then I, you know, I get a paper cut, and it takes two weeks to heal. Any bug bite on me now becomes a scar, yeah. which is terrible. That's not the way it was when I was younger. Definitely not. Yeah. There's also, I'm kind of thinking even earlier, right, you can get cord blood blood or you can get kind of embryonic stem cells. What's the difference between an embryonic stem cell and an iPSC, for example? Ah, so that's an interesting question. I mean, embryonic stem cells, they're derived from the embryo. iPSCs are derived from any adult cell type in the body. Any, yeah. yeah. you have an adult human, you could take cells from the hair follicle, from skin, from blood, and create pluripotent stem cells from that. iPSCs are what you would need to take an autologous approach. If you have a 60-year-old patient who has Parkinson's, um, we probably don't have embryonic stem cells from that person. You would have to generate iPSCs. Okay, yeah. So you've got that kind of availability. Exactly. Well, you hear about sometimes that we're going to start taking cord blood samples from everybody or kind of starting to bank people's cells at birth. I suppose the iPSCs allows you to circumvent that a little bit. Yeah, you can definitely create iPSCs from tissue samples of elderly patients. I would love to see the industry get to a point where everyone was banking cells when they were young or at an earlier stage. I think that would be a really, really interesting way for the industry to grow mm. because you would have a bank of iPSCs ready. You wouldn't have to go through the reprogramming process, which can take three months. Whenever you needed cells, you would only have to go through the differentiation process. So it would cut down the manufacturing timeline. I was interested to hear Marina's thoughts on the power of autologous iPSCs as a starting material for regenerative medicine. It seems like the lower risk of immune rejection makes up for the time needed to transform adult cells into iPSCs. And maybe in the future, we could each have access to a bank of reprogrammed autologous iPSCs for use in therapy manufacturing. I asked Marina about what needed to happen to drive adoption of these cells as a starting material. 
do you think we will get to a point where making cell therapies is considered just as routine as making uh, biologics and, and maybe what needs to change in order to get there? I think we will absolutely get to a point where personalized cell therapies become standard of care and become a commonplace therapeutic modality. Mm. These programs need to advance. So we have a lot of programs that are entering phase one, two A. We need to see efficacy. That's going to happen. We're already seeing remarkable results in the first clinical trials, even seeing amazing efficacy in phase one, two A, which is just a safety assessment. Mm. So that's going to happen. You know, right now for biotech, there is a scarcity of capital. So it's difficult for early stage companies to raise capital. There is a risk to that slowing down the industry, which is a shame. Right. The other things that need to happen, the manufacturing challenges need to be solved. I think it's widely agreed that that is one of the hugest challenges that the field faces. And that really requires technology innovation, like what we're doing at Salino. It requires a multidisciplinary approach. So kind of thinking and going beyond biology. The other piece that we need are the development of regulatory standards and in a globally aligned way. So it's an early field. We have yet to really say from a regulatory perspective, this is what IPSCs need to look like. And these are what IPSC-derived cell therapies need to look like. These are the standards that need to be met. Okay, there's no sort of target product profile per se. There's no standardized target product profile. We just, we don't have enough data yet. Yeah, It's a nascent field, but this is something that needs to be developed collaboratively between regulatory agencies and experts in the field. And if we develop it in a way that those standards are globally aligned, then that's much better because it'll be easier to deploy therapeutics across the world. You could think about an image processing algorithm like you're deploying as potentially forming part of a standard, right? Yeah, I think that could definitely be part of a characterization assay that mm. uh, leads to a release criteria. Yeah, so you said that you actually part of those regulatory discussions. Is that um, something that you kind of enjoy doing? Yeah, I'm part of some consortiums where the goal is to start working on collaboratively establishing these standards. The field is early, yeah. but it's definitely enjoyable. I think that where we're at right now is in a pre-competitive state sharing data so that folks aren't reinventing the wheel okay, and publishing white papers so that folks know what other folks have done in the space. And what other sorts of characterization metrics are you seeing people bubbling up in these discussions? At the IPSC stage, the standard metrics are um, around sterility, genomic safety and stability, potency. So do the IPSCs differentiate down the lineages that you're interested in? and uh, cell and colony health and viability. I think the area where there's still the most room to align is on the genomic safety and stability front. So there's a pretty wide range in terms of what folks are doing. And, you know, on one end of the spectrum is karyotyping G-banding, and then on the other end of the spectrum is full whole genome sequencing. And there isn't a ton of alignment yet. People are still trying to figure out what's the appropriate route to take. I mean, is that something that we would expect companies who specialize in just that aspect to emerge? Or will it be companies, sequencing companies or therapy companies? I mean, how does that pan out? The sequencing companies definitely do play a role in what ends up being characterized. So if you're talking to a cell therapy developer and you ask them, hey, which oncogenes are you assessing when you're doing sequencing to ensure oncogene integrity of your product. They'll say, oh, we're using this panel from this company, and that panel includes this list of oncogenes. So those are the oncogenes that we're looking at. So the sequencing companies definitely do play a big role. Ultimately, though, it's up to the therapy developers to decide what their spec is for their product. This is also what they hear from the FDA. The FDA is interested in seeing whole genome sequencing, but they want the therapy developer to decide what the spec is for that assay. 
And so you must end up interacting with therapy developers in terms of kind of what's the incoming QC or the um, batch release tests that you would require in order to provide a starting material. Right, exactly. So there's a list of, you know, characterization assays that we need to run on our induced pluripotent stem cells so that we can ensure that the iPSC-derived cell therapy developers that are receiving those cells to ensure that those cells will work for what they're trying to do for their program. Marina is working hard to help create standards for other iPSC manufacturers to follow. This should lead to increased scalability and reduced costs, ultimately making these treatments available to many more people. The implementation of standards isn't just decided by industry. Regulators need to be included too, in order to promote these new methods once we know they work. So, what impact are regulators having on the industry? I asked Adil for his thoughts. How many people does it take to sort of shepherd a cell therapy through from kind of starting material to infusion? If you think about some products that you've got in clinical trials, how many people have kind of had their hands in the process? It sounds like it could be a lot, right? It can be a lot because in academic settings, you think two people can generate, let's say, a product. Okay. Yes, but then the generation of the product is different. Then the qualification of the product is different. It requires more people to be involved. And you can say, okay, I can generate a product with two people. What happens if one of them is sick? And we learned a lot in the COVID-19 experience that uh, it can be possible, right? So you cannot have bare minimum. You need to have enough trained personnel to start and finish a product. Okay, so it is more than two just to handle the cells. Then qualification is a different team and it's QC, QA, they are different people. And that's more than two, three people at least. And then you need to have a clinical department or a company that is helping you. You know, it depends on how you operate. Uh, We have our own clinical department that arranges a lot of things regarding the clinical trial. Yeah. Then you also have the clinical sites. We are not running single site clinical trials. And I cannot say how many people are required at the clinical site, but there are <laughs> doctors, nurses, technicians that are all involved in monitoring the patient, recruiting the patient, screening the patient, and all the communication in between the clinical site and, and our company. So many people are involved in taking one stem cell to the patient as a potent NK cell product. A lot of it has to do with safety, ultimately, right? And um, Mm -hmm. reproducibility, batch to batch, kind of being able to rely on when you say the product is something it actually is, what you say it is. I don't know about your opinion on kind of how well are the regulators keeping up with the multitude of different sources and, and approaches that we have in the field? I cannot talk about their perspective, of course, uh, regulatory perspective and the agencies, but they have to, of course, ensure primarily the safety of experimental products. Mm. That is a must, and it's a must for all of us. Of course, yeah, yeah. Because the moment we ignore that, it may affect the entire field negatively, and it will be a 10-year setback. It happened in gene therapy, it happened in the... TCR T-cell field, that certain risks were very difficult for the field to move forward. So in that sense, yes, safety first. And uh, we are a little bit more comfortable in in the NK-cell field because we do not see 
not only glycol stem, but many in KSA companies doesn't see serious adverse uh, events. So in that sense, one of the things that makes natural killer cells advantages to move forward in cell-based therapies is safety profile in the allogeneic uh, setting. Okay, yeah. yeah. Not only in the autologous setting. And uh, that is one of the things that helps all of us a lot, not only the companies, but also the regulators. So we run earlier clinical trial using fresh and natural killer cells, non-cryopreserved. Yeah. We did not see adverse side effects. And now currently we treat more than 10 patients with the cryopreserved product and we do not see uh, serious side effects as well. So in the safety profile of our cells and most of the NK cell products are really good. Yeah, I think we are more into moving to see the efficacy level, but of course we must follow up all the safety parameters day by day. Okay, so it's allowing you to have a good baseline to move from because, okay, you've proven we have good confidence on the safety and now actually starting to look at other parameters building from kind of a good basis of understanding. Yeah, in that sense, yes, the base is really good and safe. And uh, now we can think about those. We can think about combination of natural killer cells with different things. It can be cytokines, it can be monoclonal antibodies, or you can generate genetically modified NK cells, and you can also combine them with different things. In the end, uh, when you look at today's treatment of cancer patients, it's rarely a single agent treatment. Yeah. We will anyway need uh, multiple angles to attack the tumor cells. And uh, I hope uh, NK cells will be one of these efficient tools yeah. to target them. And uh, we will learn more and more when we combine them. And one of the strategies that we are, uh, we adopted in this clinical trial in the early phases, we did not combine our cryopreserved NK cells with anything else. Just as a single agent. We just infuse our NK cells to see its, first of all, safety profile. Because if you consider using them together with different cytokines, those cytokines may have their own different safety profile, their own uh, side effects. So now we know what our product safety profile is, and we are ready to move forward yeah. to different combinations to improve efficacy in patients. What are you most excited about trialing next? Do you think there's going to be something which is particularly effective? One obvious thing to do is cytokine support uh -huh. for the persistence and in vivo survival and effect. But uh, what I am more excited about is combining natural killer cells either with monoclonal antibodies so that you can target the tumors better or now innate engagers that are also very exciting to use. So I think that for me, these are the most exciting next things that we want to do. Next steps. In terms of combination, of course, but in parallel is one of my favorite thing is to genetically modify cells and generate TCRNKs or CARNKs. That is also something that I would like to see in the clinic, but still with combination with other things. Where are we going to have the greatest impact on, say, solid tumors? Because obviously... CAR-T has had a lot of success with hematological cancers. What do you think is going to be most effective against uh, solid tumors? That's probably the million-dollar question, right? <laughs> but interested to hear what you think. I think uh, with solid tumors, it also depends on what you are targeting and how big a tumor you are targeting. You know, mm. It might be necessary to do tumor debulking, and there are studies like that. So that may help also CAR-T cells to be successful instead of 
targeting huge tumor that the cells are not enough to kill, basically, you can debulk it. So this is one of the things. Sure. And um, we published a review article end of last year summarizing the clinical landscape of uh, natural killer cell-based products. And what we see there is with genetically modified natural killer cells, especially when it comes to the combinations, our field is daring more targeting uh, solid tumors. So, uh, in my opinion, current case cells or uh, antibody innate engager combined natural killer cells can be one of the agents to target solid tumors efficiently. Okay. Uh, but of course, we need to always consider what to combine it with and what type of pretreatment is necessary, what type of co-treatment is also necessary. You know, cancer is not that simple. It can be very heterogeneous and some tumor cells are not sensitive to apoptosis. Whatever potent cell therapy product you have, if the tumor is not sensitive to the agents that your T-cell or NK cell is producing, then you need to also combine it with other things. So it's kind of like mutually effective. So my perspective is more into taking the most potent cells, the most targeted NK cell that you can, and use the best combination pretreatment and co-treatment option to target solid tumors. And I hope we get there. I think just the diversity of approaches that we have available to us is, is promising, right? Because mm -hmm. we're going to have lots of attempts to do this and lots of ways to crack it. So we should get there. The difficulty there is it is difficult for a lot of startup level companies to test all these possibilities. Each trial is multi-million dollars, euros, whatever. And uh, yeah. it's not easy to test all these combinations. We will learn from each other, I think, on the way. One of the things that makes me optimistic about advanced therapies as a field is the sheer number of approaches that are being trialed, which means that patients could end up having several effective treatments to choose from. It also means that different approaches for manufacturing are being considered, like the use of stem cells as starting materials in both regenerative medicine and immuno-oncology. It's clear that we need an alternative to primary cells as a starting point for advanced therapies manufacture, and that stem cells are an attractive choice, providing an abundant source of cellular material. Day by day, thanks to the work of life scientists, this technology is becoming more effective, safe, and accessible. There's exciting developments on the horizon. We heard from Marina about the potential impact stem cells could have on treating Alzheimer's, and Ardell's work could pave the way for combination therapies to tackle solid tumors. So what does the future look like for stem cells? I'd say they're going to be an indispensable part of the manufacturing toolkit in the not too distant future. That's all for today. Thanks so much for joining us. And a huge thanks to both Marina and Adel for sharing their expertise on this episode.